Thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Body Clock Podcast presented to you by O-Waves. This is Haroon, and I am joined today with Sohaib and a special guest for you guys today. Um, as we mentioned in previous episodes, our goal here at O-Waves and at the Body Clock Podcast is to bring to light experts and uh, enthusiasts in the fields of science, technology, and any other pertinent industry that you can really think of that relates to circadian rhythms and body clocks. And we are very privileged and pleased to bring to you today, Alan Flanagan. He is available for you to follow on Instagram at the handle, the nutritional underscore advocate. Uh, he is a science-based nutritionist for optimal health and performance, as well as an attorney and a uh, nutritional medicine master's in science and a very, very knowledgeable, intelligent dude. Uh, we are very happy to have him on today and we're going to pick his brain a little bit. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and segue the microphone over. And just so you know, we're remote. Uh, Alan and Sohei both are across the pond in the UK. I am on the complete opposite end over in San Diego. And so, um, Alan, uh, we're just going to go ahead and get right into it if that's okay with you. Um, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to say, so Alan, um, I came, first came across Alan from this new lifestyle movement in the UK, which has become quite prominent. Mm. Um, and a lot of doctors have been getting into this. And um, being quite a young doctor, what I found was um, there's a lot of lacking knowledge in this space. And it was more of a kind of a, a movement where people were piggybacking on studies and things they'd heard on the media rather than having any kind of scientific um, robust evaluation of the evidence so that's where alan stood out because we we had a whatsapp group we had um discussions but um whereas most doctors would jump on the bandwagon very easily um of a concept alan would um never be scared to you know voice his opinion but also rain in rain in a few <laughs> rain in a few wayward no, ideas is, that were getting thrown around is, <laughs> exactly which which is which is inspiring because you know you need to know the evidence it's very easy you know for a doctor to be like yeah because i've studied certain things i'm an expert in everything which is not not the case mm -hmm. so obviously you've been following alan for a while and um i mean insane amount of knowledge on the topic and obviously he's passionate about it and someone i used to kind of kind of feed my questions to and kind of increase my knowledge base so awesome. yeah so we're going to start with asking Alan a few general questions first um, about how he got interested in the space. So, Arun, yeah. would you like to start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we typically want to go through like sort of like a standardized set of questions for special yeah. guests like yourself that we bring on. And some of them are going to just be open-ended. So um, mm -hmm. we're going to probably start with one of those. And um, what, what would you say gets you out of bed every day in the morning? Um, for me... I think that kind of depends on the, on the phase of your life that you're in, right? In terms of like what, what you're working towards at a particular time. So for the last, you know, certainly six months, but in the last accelerated two months up until the 10th of July, when I submitted, I was, you know, my dissertation was, was front and center in everything that I was doing. And, and that was getting me out of bed in the morning, I guess for the last three years, what has mostly gotten me out of bed in the morning has been getting up and at it for more, you know, research. And I spend my life buried in research, nutrition, science, and that drives me. That 
hunger for obtaining as absolutely much knowledge as I can in this subject and thoroughly understanding it because it's so nuanced. And that's why I fell in love with it. The, the shades of gray, the nothing being black and white. Um, so really, you know, my, my drive to get up in the morning is continually in the, in the broadest sense, a drive to keep learning um, and keep, keep, keep that brain taken over. Absolutely. I mean, where, where would you say right now your primary focus is? Cause you're, you're very uh, multidimensional in terms of like your professional yeah, well, background. So law, yeah. Law is my day job. Um, and always has been as a professional career. This was originally my kind of like side passion, you know, the way you might read history in your spare time or have a particular interest in something. Um, and then I, but I wanted to formalize the process because I found myself gravitating towards the science. I got frustrated that I felt like a lot of people, I think when I first started trying to self-learn about nutrition, I was reading books and blogs and then I was kind of a bit skeptical of the the type of information I was getting. And I, I wanted to be able to verify whether it was true. So I started turning to research. But of course, I had no formal training in, in that sense. So that's where I wanted to assume. Um, and so I, I, I have a balance in my life, but it's definitely a balance that requires certain sacrifices in terms of, you know, like the way you operate your week and the way you you know, schedule things. So, um, you know, my focus, it depends. I mean, professionally, my focus is to, you know, have a, you know, professional life that allows me to pursue my passion. And I do believe you can have a profession and a passion and they don't necessarily have to be the same thing. Um, so I'm lucky in that sense. I'm lucky that I have a profession that I enjoy and that allows me to pursue my passion. Now that said, you know, where a path to full-time research to illuminate. Um, and when I say illuminate, I'm trying to set that path on fire and make it illuminate. Um, uh, you know, if that's to present itself, then I'll, then I'll have a hard think um, about what I'm doing because the goal you know, long-term would be to get into nutrition research and the science. So right now I'm in the process of just trying to figure out the whys and wherefores of moving on to a PhD and looking for funding, um, potentially from the British Heart Foundation or whatever. But, you know, if that was to manifest, then, then I'd have a, a serious conversation with myself about, you know, going, going full-time into that. But in, until that bridge or fork in the road presents itself then the status quo right now works for me and i'm lucky that it does absolutely um i i am very eager to dive into your dissertation specifically because of the yeah. uh, topic that it covers uh, so hey is there any other general q a that you have for alan or should we get right into it i think there's so many questions we could be asking him but i think we really want to get into the whole science of it and the value he can really add to listeners um, but I think before we start, um, so Alan, um, obviously O-Waves is a concept of trying mm -hmm. to optimize your daily uh, plan, which most people struggle with. Mm -hmm. um, you're someone from, from following you, um, it seems is quite good at finding that balance between, you know, learning, exercise, you know, 
making the right food choices, mm. uh, you know, still social connection, the whole kind of lifestyle medicine spectrum mm. you, to be able to kind of calculate. You even have a day, um, um, you know, without your phone. So you have, you seem mm. to have found a good balance. So um, just about what's helped you do that. Have you always been like that or is it something? No, I, I've, I've always been um, fortunate to be one of those people who is organized. That's at least one thing that I've always had. I do have a touch of, um, you know, kind of an obsessive element to my organization, <laughs> but I've always been organized. So that's been helpful. Um, but in the last couple of years, I read a lot of, you know, some excellent books about, you know, optimizing, you know, performance and in a general sense, in a life sense, possibly the most impactful was Cal Newport's Deep Work. Um, and then Tony Schwartz's The Way We're Working Isn't Working, which was just a real rubbish of like the manner in which we're kind of like the nine to five workday is set yeah. up and stuff. So I, I, I had my organization and I usually always put a structure on my day. And then I read these books and I decided, okay, there is really valuable lessons here that I can put in place. Um, things like giving yourself, you know, I do one day a week with, you know, just no, no social media and no emails and stuff like that. Um, but even in the morning now, so the way I kind of organize my day is I'm an early bed person. Like I'm pretty much in bed by about 9 p.m. most nights. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's because I figured out that for the most part, our waking time is relatively non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. And if you're a nine-hour person sleep a night, which I am, I'm not when I'm not, but when I'm training hard, uh, which I do because I compete in powerlifting. So I'm training hard. I'm also exerting a lot of mental you know, output during the day. And I actually find that cognitive exertion is more fatiguing than physical exertion, to be honest. Um, when you combine the two, uh, I am one of those people that needs pretty much nine hours a night in order to, to, to really be on firing on all cylinders. So that's what dictates that. I tend to wake up naturally anytime between six and a half, seven. Um, and so if I want to get that in, then, you know, getting into bed at nine, reading for 20 to 30 minutes, fall asleep. I put my phone on airplane mode before I go to bed. And then the first two hours of my day is a sanctuary where that phone doesn't come on. So I'm cut off from the outside world for the first two hours of my day. And I'll get up. The first thing I'll do is, well, I'll down a glass of water. I'll meditate for 15 minutes. Um, I'll stretch and do some yoga poses to loosen up. I'll make coffee. I'll read for 20 minutes and then I attack whatever uh, particular thing I really want to do with that day. And I'll attack it for about 90 minutes, totally undistracted. Um, and depending on the day or what commitments I have, that could, that could go on. Um, but usually it's that average of like just doing that 90 minutes or two hours in the morning. And then I might turn on my phone, connect with the world. Um, I might have to go into work, into my desk and take care of stuff in there or whatever. So my day can be really, really variable. Uh, it's never the same for the most part. And so having certain rules and structures around that really helps. And for the most part, then by the evening, by about eight o'clock, 
I'm trying to check out of my phone um, and I'm thinking more to, you know, starting to kind of wind down and go to bed again. But basically any time from that first two hours of my day to kind of going to bed can be relatively variable. Um, from a circadian perspective, I figured out that I'm best training any time between, say, three and seven but even seven's getting kind of late so i uh, uh, on the mo on the main i train at about 4 p.m till about 5 30. okay well i mean that's very insightful so it's very so it seems like you've got these structures in place but then you've got the flexibility to adapt yeah. to yeah. Kind of external cues and situations because absolutely yeah life doesn't run how we want it to no exactly yeah and amazing um and is there before we go into the the kind of well i'm sure every, all the listeners will be waiting for um, any elite performance or anyone you've looked at as kind of inspiration um, or is it just, you know, you've read a lot of books and it's yeah, it's more of, it's more of a collection and an, and an accumulation. Um, yeah. I think of, of, you know, different sources and, and different bits of knowledge that you pick up along the way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, there's no one in particular that like I kind of have as, as a kind of, you know, a uh, kind of uh, an uber role model in yeah. any sense it's i'm always drawing from from different stuff yeah trying to create the best yeah. okay so I'm, i mean interesting when we when royan does do an o waves a daily plan of yours we're looking forward to posting that actually yeah yeah um, <laughs> so now i think it's time to deep dive into some topics that um i mean i'm looking forward to learning <laughs> so we'll start with time restricted feeding mm. um so what 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 can you tell us about the whole concept of time restricted feeding and the length of time yeah so the first thing i think that is good to clarify um for listeners is that um time restricted feeding is often conflated with intermittent fasting and they certainly are related but they're more like cousins than brother and sister and what i mean by that is most of the intermittent fasting regimes were simply concerned with one thing and one thing only and that was an extended period without food and then an eating window but that eating window when you look at different intermittent fasting um regimes that eating window is random um it, you know you have some paradigms that they might eat between for four hours and it might be in the evening or they might skip a whole day of food and kind of do alternate day fasts. So intermittent fasting is very much solely concerned with the restriction of energy for typical periods, um, you know, 16 hours being a minimum or more, but it's not really considering time of day dependent eating. People eat whenever the hell they like with an intermittent fasting regime often, you know, just once it's in the window. Yeah. Time restricted feeding was born out of, circadian research and so it is distinctly circadian in nature and it factors in what we have accumulated over the years from animal model data and also from what are known as you know um constant routine studies which are lab-based work in humans where their light cues are manipulated or for example all of the external light cues or or timing cues are removed so that they end is a little longer than the 24-hour day which is why we have these external cues we'll get into that but the basic premise of time-restricted feeding was from that body of mechanistic studies shall we say and animal data a couple of features emerged one was that for example our 
uh, insulin sensitivity peaks in the earlier part of the day and kind of declines as the day goes on. Uh, we have rhythms in circulating triglycerides, which for listeners, it's a technical term. It just means the circulating fat in your blood and that can come in through the diet or it can be released, you know, from stored energy uh, from fat tissue. We have peaks in obviously different hormones that are involved in blood sugar management, cortisol in the morning. That's typically associated with what they call the cortisol awakening response. You get out of bed. So all of this, all of this data accumulated and, and, Using different constant routine studies, it was identified that, well, if you give people, you know, a glucose infusion at 9 p.m., you know, they're, they're fairly, their response is, is fairly impaired. Their tissue insulin sensitivity is poor. If you give them even a snack, a 200-calorie snack at 11 p.m., you know, they'll have decreased fat oxidation and all of these negative metabolic consequences. So from time-restricted um, feeding, kind of was was very much born with these parameters in mind and so it has certain principles at play in it which for example would be that an earlier timing of more ener- of, of the greater bulk of one's energy intake should come relatively earlier in the day um, do not you know eat late into the biological night which really i think if you tease it out in the literature is from about 8 p.m onwards um, and the ultimate goal of a time-restricted feeding approach is to because our circadian rhythms are cyclical are the primary drivers are obviously light exposure but as well as the cycle of light and darkness is our cycles of wake and sleep and there are cycles of activity and rest there also are cycles of feeding and fasting so time-restricted feeding is very much about aligning all of those circadian variables together so that your food intake is coming during the period of light activity and waking and you're giving your body distinct cycles of feeding and fasting light and darkness etc in that respect oh wow so this seems to be um to, to three so you have to kind of synchronize your cycles is that what you're saying yeah and and, and that's that's we need to do that because so I mentioned there that the free running human circadian yeah. system is a little longer. It's about twenty four hours and twenty minutes, or twenty four hours and thirty minutes, give or take. Okay. And our day is not our day is twenty four hours flat. Yeah. What that means is that we consistently every day need external cues to synchronize ourselves and what goes on in our body to our external environment. The primary driver of that synchronization is light, and particularly light of a wavelength uh, 460 to 480 nanometers. Now your listeners are going, what the hell does that mean? Or what does that even look like? Well, it's very simple, particularly if you've got people in San Diego, go outside and look up at the sky. (laughs) Lucky. (laughs) Because the color, 400, the reason the sky is what we perceive it to be as blue, shortwave blue light, that is exactly what you are looking at when you see a blue sky. It's the wavelength that gives us the, the, what we perceive as color. And that wavelength of a blue sky is 460 to 480 nanometers. We have specialized cells in our eyes that have nothing to do with vision in the sense of creating images from what we perceive. And those cells relay information about light to a particular part of our brain and that is the most potent time cue to the human circadian system that then 
feeds down information to the rest of the body to signal it's daytime. But if light is the primary driver of synchronization to our external environment on a daily basis, probably the second one is meal timing because meal timing consistently resets the circadian clock and we can offset our circadian clock by shifting meal timing and having erratic meal timing or late meal timing and stuff like that. The rhythms in our liver, in our pancreas, um, in our kidneys and in all of these organs in our digestive system, even now they're looking at there's rhythms in the microbiome, basically the composition of gut bacteria that we have in our colon that's really important. So everything that's involved in metabolism in the taking in of energy that we eat, the breaking down, the digestion, assimilation, absorption of it, and the utilization of it is under circadian control. And in order for us to have really optimal health, what we want to have is synchronization between our primary light-driven synchronization cues with our meal timing cues so that our peripheral tissues in our liver and our pancreas and our digestive system synchronize with the primary, what they call the central master clock in the brain. And when that all syncs up together, we have optimal circadian synchronicity. Um, But actually when you disconnect any of them, then we're into circadian misalignment. And that obviously now is something that we're starting to realize has really profoundly negative effects for metabolic health, for neurological health, cardiovascular health, um, and otherwise. Okay, so so would you so for a listener, would which would they be better placed to be having um, say lunch at one o'clock or a certain time every day? Would it vary by person or is it just about being consistent? It's uh, about consistency for the most part. Okay. Um, not only that, it, here's what I will say does vary by person. We have largely arbitrary concepts about breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I always make this point when I talk about circadian stuff. Okay. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, if you think about it, breakfast is largely dictated to by someone's work start time and whenever they then get out of bed. So breakfast is largely yeah. arbitrary. Breakfast is, if you're a kid, is dictated to by your school start time and what time to get out of bed in order to make that and have breakfast in between. Dinner can be relatively arbitrary as well, although what we see in circadian kind of literature now, if if there's any one part of the day that is really getting messed about, um, it's it's evening eating and uh, eating habits and meal timing in the evening. Um, That's one of the effects of extended evening illumination is people are simply up later and they're eating later. and they snack a lot. They might have dinner at 8 p.m., but then there's a lot of discretionary snack intake that comes between, say, 8 and 11 before they go to bed, which is problematic. So the reason I say this is this. When I say things like your insulin sensitivity or your response to glucose peaks in the early part of the day, I'm saying early part of the day. That's quite a broad definition. I'm not saying breakfast. <laughs> um, and so you'll have internal rhythms certainly that are your own and that's where taking an intuitive approach to your food intake can come into play so i'll give myself as an example i tend to wake up anytime between six and a half seven give or take and i am not hungry in the morning i don't want to eat um and i'll get up and i'll drink water or black coffee or some green tea but i won't be eating food 
and then I get hungry at 10 a.m. So, so 10 a.m. is my breakfast, uh, even though it's not breakfast time in the traditional mm-hmm. sense, but it's my first meal. And I'll typically eat again at about two, one to two, and I'll typically have dinner at about seven. And that's kind of my, and then you get people that wake up and they are ready to eat as soon as they get out of bed. They are, you know, they're <laughs> obviously hungry and they know they're hungry. So they should eat when they're hungry and when they're up. Okay. So general rules, um, trying to be practical for people. I do think that a time restriction on feeding is beneficial. It does not have to be extreme. I think even aiming for an 11 hour window is, is, and you're, you're doing fine. And that gives people in the real world something to work with. If, you know, you could have breakfast at eight and finish at 7 PM. It's easy to do in that context. One thing I would say though, is trying to have the bulk of your energy, certainly in the earlier part of the day overall. So that could come across your first two meals and maybe a snack if you wanted. They did a really interesting study in Spain, control trial humans. Um, and I, I always um, qualify that because so much of the research in this area is in mice and rats, and there's a lot of overreach based on that kind of data. But this was in lean, metabolically healthy women. They controlled uh, breakfast and dinner, and they had breakfast and dinner at the same time. But the only difference was the timing of lunch. And so what that meant is that the group eating lunch at 430 uh, was having 70% of their daily energy late in the day. So they had lunch at 4.30, but they still had that dinner at 8 o'clock. And after, I think it was four weeks, the impact on their metabolic health was 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 quite profound. Decreased glucose tolerance, decreased fat oxidation, um, and this shifting in the rhythms, you know, of their kind of metabolism, the, you know, circadian rhythms of their peripheral organs and tissues so that you know was was actually really interesting because it corroborated a lot of what we'd seen in mechanistic studies and free-running studies and stuff like that and fundamentally it shows consistent with a few other studies in humans that really from a kind of more you know viewing this from a circadian time-restricted feeding perspective we are definitely better off consuming a more or a greater proportion of our total energy intake in the earlier part of the day and maybe that's in your first kind of two meals or something but when i say early part of the day i mean any time between when you wake up and 3 p.m okay i mean that's that's um something that um dr sachin panda seems to discuss as well but um this is mm. a perfect time to ask you about your perspective on him because a lot of his studies are in my yeah. rats so so sachin panda is brilliant um an amazing scientist and you know has done incredible work um in this area and with with the salk institute and i I think they are really kind of on the cutting edge of this stuff it's not sachin panda that's the issue it's people that take his rodent model studies and overreach on what the conclusions might be in relation to humans um and there are some people in the space, you know, that I, that I really respect, but, you know, they're constantly, you know, re- referring to that. I, I think people fell in love with that graph. <laughs> Remember they published that study in cell metabolism and they had the cute infographic of the, the, the fat mice 
that did different time restricted feeding and <laughs> some of them did only weekend trf and it protected them from obesity and then yeah some, i saw that <laughs> and people just i think it's just a really nice infographic and so people just throw it about the place and see like he's you know this is what time restricted feeding does it's like nah no they're they're, they're rats <laughs> so yeah why, why do you think nutrition is something that people seem to like having a belief system or grabbing for uh, making correlations uh, above and beyond. Yeah, I, nutrition for me is unique amongst health sciences because other health sciences or any science really is typically just more objective. Mm. But we all eat. Uh, yeah. We will engage with food more than any other variable in our life. I mean, you will sleep once a day. You'll buy a car twice in your life. You'll buy a house once. You'll do all these things through your life that are really kind of impactful and, and, and significant very rarely. But every single day, you will eat multiple times and you will make multiple cognitive decisions in that day. So it's very much tied to being human and at a very deep level. And obviously, because, you know, if you look at from a kind of, you know, anthropological point of view and why we're here and other hominoid species died out and why we have a prefrontal cortex and, you know, those rats we study don't. <laughs> um, it's very much tied to nutrition in our evolution. So I think that at a very deep rooted level, nutrition is something that becomes part of someone's identity. The choices that they make reflect their moral values, reflect their ethical values. Uh, and then reflect their nutritional beliefs. And it's really not the moral or ethical values that get us in trouble. Um, it's when people take their nutritional beliefs and internalize that as part of their self-construct that we end up in serious problems. <laughs> uh, and, and that's, and that's yeah. really where we're at now, really, with all the noise in nutrition, is people just can't separate nutrition from mm. their self. Exactly. And I think being into quite conquering statistics and data. And I think as we evolve into a more of a technological society that is slightly more intellectually robust, I think people like you who kind of um, have more of a kind of look at the evidence for nutrition. Um, I think there is, there'll be an increasing awareness because you do hear from, I mean, being a medical student, I was so confused. Uh, <laughs> you hear so many different things and then you, then you make no choice because Mm. behavioral economics tells us that when we have too much choice we don't make a choice so when you're hearing mm. low carb low fat you're hearing all these different mm. kind of ways vegan etc i mean you're just like you know what screw it <laughs> i'll just yeah one. yeah yeah, yeah. i got a cheeseburger yeah you, you look you look at the so you're quite well, i'm quite interested in public health so you look at the kind of population health paradigm mm. so a lot of these principles are quite good for population health but say i'm um, say say for example I'm setting my O waves plan mm -hmm. and say I'm like your power lifter, say, mm -hmm. I'm, a, say I'm a tennis player or um, endurance athlete or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I have my training later in the day. Mm -hmm. Would I be better off starting my time restrict? If say, if I'm applying the principles of time restricted feeding mm -hmm. later on due to that adjustment. Yes. Uh, there's two ways of looking at that. One is that you could just start a kind of later, you know, window. It really would be dependent on when exactly that evening training session is coming in. Okay. And it really would be dependent on the energetic demands of that session. 
So if I was telling someone who uh, I was discussing this on a, on a podcast two weeks ago with a group of guys here in Ireland that um, they're all strength and conditioning coaches. Okay. So they're working with people who are coming in and doing very demanding, going home and getting home at nine or nine. And they were like, well, what's your advice for someone like that? Mm. And my advice is typically to probably have more of a kind of liquid based meal. So like a blend of smoothie in the blender and typically keep the dietary fat content of it lower. That's nothing against dietary fat. Mm. It's simply a reflection of the circadian peaks in triglycerides that occur and they occur in the evening. So you don't necessarily want to dump a really high fat meal in on top of that late in the night because you just exacerbate the mm. digestive post-absorptive circulation of fat in the blood, which mm. isn't great when you're just going to sleep. So typically what I'd say to someone is, you know, if, if it was if it was a tennis match, you know, it depends. Like, I mean, if you played three sets in the evening and a bit mm. of heat and you're sweating, like your primary goal is to replenish those fluids first yeah. and foremost. Um, and your primary kind of nutrients that would be optimal at that point in time would be protein and some carbohydrates and keeping fat relatively lower. But so I would say to someone, if they did have to eat later in the night, um, would be try and keep it something light protein based, some, some, maybe some kind of, um, you know, some carbohydrate with that. If they, if they had a kind of training session that warranted replacing carbohydrates that they lost. So what I would say to someone, if that is their case and they have to train at 7.30 p.m., your, your nutrition during the day is going to be what, what dictates you know, the, the outcome of that session. So make sure that you get all your energy intake in during the day that you need. You're going to be fueled for that session. If you've had enough protein over the course of the day, you're likely going to be fine for like a, a, a response afterwards. So just have something very light on a kind of like a shake in the blender with a banana and some frozen berries and keep it light and go to bed and get up and just have a big breakfast the next day. So I think everyone needs a personal Alan to yeah. personalize their day. Seriously. That's what always we're trying to make it actionable. Yeah, Haroon. So I think the dissertation, um, it brings us nicely onto that. So absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very uh, popular topic nowadays that I'm seeing more and more on the, uh, uh, the internet in terms of like what your dissertation specifically covered with regards to nurses and working night shift shift work. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's yeah. becoming uh there's shedding light on the fact that that is actually very unhealthy. It takes 10 years off your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm finding out everything yeah. I do is suddenly taking another decade off. So I feel like I got a week left at this point, but, but if it's, you can... it's a difficult one because the nature of the societies that we've evolved means that shift work isn't going anywhere. Um, so it's really imperative that we, um, develop the research and the evidence base to be able to have it be, you know, less impactful on people. I think that part of the reason why we see such strong associations now with adverse health outcomes, particularly, it seems to be dose dependent as well. Like you, you can get away with it for a while, but when you certainly in relation to you know, the long-term effects of people who work shifts over, say, 20 years, that seems to be really where you see some pretty early uh, onset, you know, cardiovascular disease and, and stuff like that. Um, but it's not going anywhere. So it's really important that, you know, particularly for our healthcare professionals, um, we 
grow the evidence base so we're able to give people better advice on actually i can tell you what i'm hoping to pitch for my phd but um <laughs> that's <laughs> interesting <laughs> um so it it is important um one of the really interesting observations from shift work in in as it relates to kind of chrono chrono nutrition i love that term because like, <laughs> what is that i'm like oh you think yeah <laughs> sounds pretty cool <laughs> yeah it does say cool um but, but one of the really interesting things was the original assumption was that, well, the reason why shift workers are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, et cetera, cardiometabolic disease generally, is probably because they've been up all day and then they eat more in the evenings and blah, blah, blah. We actually know that not to be the case. People who work shifts don't actually consume any more total daily energy than someone that just works during the day. So it really started pointing the finger at the kind of time in which they're eating being really important. If they're not consuming any extra energy, then this really isn't so much about calories as much as it's about when they're eating. There's a couple of interesting things that, that when we sleep and during our biological night, we'll have two peaks in circulating blood fats. Um, now, if you're asleep and you're, you're fasting and you're not eating, that's fine. Um, and it's going to create some energy availability to be able to get up and, and start the day. The other effect is you, when you sleep, obviously before sleep, you'll have an increase in melatonin. Well, once you're not staring at a 60 inch plasma, spitting at the same, <laughs> at the same wavelength of life that that blue light, that that blue sky is showing you, but yeah. you will have an increase in melatonin. You go to bed and melatonin remains elevated during the biological night and will start to come down towards the morning the issue is that melatonin was once considered like the sleep hormone like that's being fairly disparaging to melatonin it, it has an incredibly wide array of uh, physiological effects one of which is an interaction with the pancreas there's melatonin receptors in the pancreas melatonin basically uh, in conditions of high melatonin levels like when you're asleep if you consume carbohydrates your insulin response is going to be so exaggerated and you're going to basically have um you know peripheral insulin resistance and your, your blood glucose response to that meal is going to be all over the place so even and they've done research on this you know a 200 calorie snack at 11 o'clock has really negative metabolic effects over a couple of weeks a 200 calorie snack at 4 a.m will result in the highest peak in triglycerides in circulation, uh, even more than a, a meal containing 750 calories at 1 a.m. Part of the reason for that is all of the, the fat from the meal that was consumed earlier uh, gets stored in cells in your intestines. And then when the previous snack comes in, it gets bumped out into circulation. And that means that even small snack type calorie intake if it's taken in at the wrong time can have a lot of negative effects on you know someone's metabolic health so we're starting to gather an understanding of what um you know is going on in terms of the underlying metabolic issues and, and why eating during our biological night is such a problem but one of the things that really hadn't been teased out that well in the research there's 
one or two studies looking at it. One very good one from last year that, that kind of was the genesis for, for my idea, but it hasn't really looked at the distribution of energy. No one works, typically no one works one night uh, acutely. It's certainly in healthcare, the standard is internal rotating shift patterns where someone works three nights in a row, has an off day and works three day shifts or something like that. And very little research has looked at, well, if someone's working a couple of nights in a row, how do they distribute their energy? If they're not consuming any more than the person that just works during the day and goes home and sleeps during the biological night, what's the pattern? Um, so what I wanted to do was look at, specifically look at the manner in which energy intake in nurses was redistributed to the night phase. Um, and what we ended up finding was that between certainly night one and night two on night, the first night they work shifts, they won't consume in a huge amount of their total daily energy intake during that night phase. And that's because they've been awake for the day and they've kind of eaten their normal daily pattern. So they might snack a bit and they might have maybe 10 or 15% of their, of their energy intake comes during between say 9 PM and 7 AM. But by night two, they had, and the, the, the spread was, was wide enough in terms of the difference, but up to 40% of their total daily energy had been redistributed to that night phase. And the reason this is really important is because we know from everything that we know about circadian rhythms that one night, two nights, three nights worked is not enough to have a circadian realignment to that night phase. So your biological processes are still tied to the day, but you're eating all of this energy intake during what internally and in your circadian rhythms is your biological night. So that can only have negative effects on on someone's cardiometabolic health over the long term. And what, what seems to be the most pronounced negative effect is in relation to your glucose tolerance, so carbohydrate intake and your triglycerides, so dietary fat. Um, and so one thing, and this is where what I'm hoping to kind of maybe pitch as a PhD, the one thing piece of feedback you get from people who do work shifts is they're saying, well, look, I know that the best thing I could do is not eat at all, but that's just not feasible. Like I'm, I'm running around, you know, they're nurses or something, they're stressed or they're doctors, you're dealing with stuff going on. So not eating doesn't seem pragmatic for people who work shifts, particularly in kind of demanding environments. What I'm kind of interested in is looking at the effects of protein feeding as opposed to carbohydrate and fat, because protein metabolism is relatively unique. It's certainly different to carbohydrate and fat. And it doesn't seem that anyone has actually looked at the effects of kind of intermittent protein feedings during a biological night and what impact that has on, you know, blood glucose responses and stuff like that. And if that could be something that is less impactful, then it might give us some strategies to be able to tell people who do work shifts some better advice on how to eat. So you might have a non-fat Greek yogurt, you know, at what 1 a.m. or something like that. And we, and we may be able to optimize when we tell people to eat during during nights. So I think that's a really good point you bring up that the quality of the calories is just as vital as the quantity, right? So 
I think uh, too many times we get caught up with sticking to that 2,000 calorie number per day here in the United States. And, you know, I kept it under that and I should have had a good day. But are you eating, you know, healthy, lean meats, grass fed beef, things like that? Or are you, you know, picking up like a piece of processed bologna or are you eating like yeah, a Pop Tart? And, and, and the, the thing about the thing about our, our, our circadian rhythms is that if that was coming during the biological night, there's a question over whether that even you know the, the the quality thing would matter like it's the it's the effect of the meal itself mm. so you could sit down to quite a high quality meal i mean you could sit down to a grass-fed steak and some sweet roast sweet potato at 1 a.m um yeah there's you know it, it seems if your 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 response certainly to the sweet potato would be would be just as uh would be just or- so, yeah. so on the flip side, could I have a pop tart instead, and it's the same thing? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that to me, Alan. You don't know what you're going to do to me if you stay out of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to this PhD. I'm hoping you get it. Thanks, but dude. Yeah. Unfortunately, I only have four months of nights left. Right. <laughs> surgery. So, as someone who's having four night shifts in a row coming up, and then you switch to days and then weekends and nights, pretty brutal. Thirteen-hour shifts. Yeah. So would, so would you say, um, so you you kind of, you're hypothesizing the protein content. So what things like protein shakes if they have a low sugar? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, it's a hypothesis I have that protein typically doesn't have, you know, certainly you can get an, you, you will get an insulin response to protein intake. Um, but it depends on the type of protein as well. Um I'm kind of of the opinion that if you're going to set up your, your, your eating during the biological night, then yeah, a protein shake or a non-fat Greek yogurt or, um, you know, some, I don't know, even sashimi or something like that, you know, okay. some light snacks. I would say avoid eating at certainly 4 a.m. because that seems to be, that that is the point of like peak triglyceride circulation a lot of the time. So that is also the point that most people eat. <laughs> yeah, it's on the right. night shift, it's in the middle. <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's try, very insightful. Try and try that. and eat maybe at say like yeah. I would say like have a big dinner certainly at like say nine p.m. Yeah, and before. and then a snack at three, and then you know maybe when a protein you, shake at seven or something like yeah. that. Um, but and yeah, when when you come back in the morning and you go about to sleep, is it good to eat like a breakfast? well yes um but again i would say to keep that to a kind of like protein and fat type breakfast because your 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 insulin sensitivity after a night of no sleep or impaired sleep is that of a pre-diabetic so come Uh, home and have some scrambled eggs and some avocado and then get into bed i've written all that down (laughs) i will show you (laughs) the effects of that um yeah and then when you get up even though it's counterintuitive because you're working more nights, just get out and go for like a, you know, 30 minutes to 45 minute to hour. Um, just walk in, okay. in natural light. Um, the other thing you can try and do is get the um, amberware um, blue light blocking glasses. I've seen but, you wear them. <laughs> yeah. But so you can get, so I, I've got, I've got the Swannies, which are extreme because they're really, okay. really dark orange. Now they block everything, but there are companies that are doing blue light blocking glasses 
that will block up to 440 nanometers. So they don't block all blue light, but they're clear glasses. So they just look like you're wearing normal reading glasses. Okay. But it's just enough kind of to, if you're wearing them during the night shift, you're still able to obviously see and everything. Um, but it's, it's just enough blue light blockage that you might be able to keep some integrity in your, in your circadian rhythms, even though you're pulling an all nighter. Okay, I'm, I'm going to write that down as well. <laughs> um, okay, I hadn't heard of these actually. Yeah. So are they available commercially? Yes, they're, um, yeah. Not, uh, not Amberware. Um, they're good. They're nice. I have a pair coming to me now. So <laughs> they're, they're the ones, because the, the ones that are really orange tinted, like, yeah. yeah, I've worn them out publicly sometimes. Yeah, I've seen you. It's my circadian rhythm, dude. It's not... <laughs> as long as you so, so it these, these are a little easier for socializing and stuff like yeah. that. I don't think I'll be socializing too much in the hospital. <laughs> no, you are not. No, exactly. exactly. Glasses sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Alan, so I had a quick question for you because I was thinking yeah, yeah, about what, I was thinking about what you were talking about earlier with regards to just like normalizing our our patterns, right? When it comes to mm -hmm. like us being creatures of light and uh, mm -hmm. that ultimately, you know, evolutionary wise, like probably you know being the reason why we are the way we are today. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on you know some of those more outlier populations of people who are you know more light exposed in certain like geographic areas? And also um, with regards to that, as well as like the comment you made a little bit of like a tangent, but the, the concept of like eating protein being better, would you attribute that in any way to like our evolutionary, you know, sort of development where, you know, at a point, you know, when we're early hominids, you know, more than likely we were probably getting, you know, our nutrition and calories from what, like plant sources, animal, mm -hmm. animal proteins. And it probably wasn't until like uh, the industrial revolution that, you know, suddenly processed foods came about and that became like a very normal Actually, thing. Actually, it, it was the Second World War, really. That oh, was really? The birth, what we know is the processed food industry now. Yeah. And and it was born out of the, the obviously the, the best intentions in the world. It's like, well, how do we create food that can survive and travel to feed an army in the South Pacific, uh, you know, and France? Um so a lot of what we know about like, you know, processing and packaging and stuff like that and preserve and all that kind of stuff was actually born out of the second world war. Yeah. Sure. Um, makes sense. So no, my, my idea about protein feeding is actually just much more metabolic. It's just, it's, it's looking at the way that we digest uh, protein doesn't kind of necessarily because it's typically just, it's, it's a building block, obviously. So we, we use proteins slightly differently in the body to the way that we use you know, we, we don't typically convert a lot of protein into fat. We don't typically convert a lot of protein. We can do in different conditions into glucose. We can convert protein into glucose easier than we would kind of convert it into fat. Um, and it's just really more to do with the metabolic response to protein intake that I'm interested in perhaps has less negative impacts on your, you know, on your kind of, you know, insulin and on your tissue insulin sensitivity and on your triglycerides uh, if one was to to consume it in the biological night and again that is purely a hypothesis and i don't know is it based on evolution no not necessarily it's based on metabolic responses um and, and what potentially could be a different metabolic response if someone just has kind of you know protein-based snacks during the night um but you touched on that really interesting point about light um 
our circadian rhythms are flexible because they respond to time cues. Um, but there is some, there is some interesting kind of, you know, data on, for example, and, and Matthew Walker talks about this in his book. Um, I love that sleep, guy, by the way. Yeah. And he talks about the increase in heart attacks that occurs with daylight savings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's really scary stuff. And, you know, we've, we've fairly arbitrary come up with daylight savings for the purposes of creating an extra hour of light in the morning for agriculture. And that's typically the historical purpose of daylight savings is to allow, you know, agricultural um, industry to have an extra hour of light because you're not going to have it in the evening. Um, there's question marks over whether that's even necessary in the, in the modern world. And I agree with those question marks. You interestingly, you also have political interventions that can mess with people's circadian rhythms, and probably the most famous one there is Spain. So we all know Spain for late night eating and you know the siesta in the in the <laughs> afternoon, and then people go out for dinner. Um, but if you're Irish or from the UK, for example, you go to Spain and you know it's just direct south you're flying, but yet you get there and it's an hour ahead. But then you go into Portugal and you're back on Irish and UK time. <laughs> why? And the reason is during the rise of fascism and into the second world war franco wanted spain to be on the same time zone as germany and germany is one is gmt plus plus one so spain ended up changing for political reasons its time and suddenly everyone's daily routines that were so established over the years were shifted by an hour um and there's a lot of really good circadian research comes out of out of out of a group in spain and uh there's some quite strong calls to basically just shift their clocks back and be in at 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Um, and then there's obviously the region of the world you can be in just basically on geography and the Scandinavian countries. Um, you know, if you're up in Alaska, if you're in Northern Canada, you're going to go through periods of the year with extreme swings in how light it is and how dark it is. Um, and yes, our circadian rhythms are adaptable, but certainly there is, you know, in the Scandinavian countries, there was quite a high prevalence of suicide in the in the winter months. Um, one of the big pushes in Scandinavia has been to get people getting artificial blue light exposure in the winter months. Um, and I do recommend that for anyone that lives in a climate where for the first couple of hours of their day in the winter months, it's dark out. Um, you can buy them freely available on Amazon. Philips do a good range. Um, the Go Light Blue is a good one. And you spend 30 minutes with this blue light box on your face, just, just on, and, and your, your eyes will pick up on it in the morning. And people really notice a difference in their energy levels, in their mood, um, and all of these variables. And, and it's important to note that the mood thing isn't, random light is physiologically arousing to humans and that's that's why we we get up and go and we respond to it it's why in the summer people are like oh my god everyone's in such a great mood the sun's out and it's like that's not random <laughs> you know we didn't lick that off the ground um so it is difficult for, for me i notice i actually kind of because i i'm typically quite stringent with regulating my light environment i i struggle during the summer months here because it's you know right now it's you know, it's 8.30 here, 
and it's beautiful outside. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I want to go. I want to go outside. You know, so um, I, I typically, you know, and it's like I don't want to put on the blue light blockers because it's such a nice day. But you know, I, I will eventually. But you know, t- typically I do in the summer. I'm I'm less um, I'm less militant on that because it is light outside. So, but but some of the experiments they've done over the years in the circadian realm with humans have been interesting. I mean, the, the pioneers um, and he, him, the professor took his postdoc and they basically went down into a cave uh, for two weeks or three weeks and measured, you know, so that they were the ones that really discovered that the human circadian rhythm was free running because they removed all light cues. They lived in pitch black for weeks and they were the ones that kind of started to, and they were, they were recording and taking, you know, data and blood measures and stuff. And they realized that, and the term circadian, you know, the rhythm is defined by it running independently of, of, of other stuff. So you'll, you'll, those peaks and triglycerides or your insulin sensitivity and all that stuff. And so it's about synchronizing what we do with them, trying to impose onto them because that's when we lose. Uh, <laughs> and that's, fairly reflective of how we're living now with getting up in the morning people in industrialized countries spend 88 percent of their time in enclosed buildings um that's a really scary stat and what it effect means is that even though you might think your room is brightly lit it does not compare to the intensity of light that we get from natural light exposure so people might get up in the morning and it's dark out they might commute in a car to a poorly lit office from a circadian perspective poorly lit they don't get any light signals that stimulate circadian entrainment and then they come home in the evening and they're lying on the tv with a 60 inch plasma on and their iphone six inches in front of their face and they're getting all of this light exposure that is signaling to them finally it's daytime it's arousal it's awake but it's 7 p.m and then they're going to bed and they're waking up and they're tired and they're fatigued and this idea that has emerged in this term of like social jet lag, I mean, that is what so many people are walking around experiencing on a daily basis because their light cues are all over the place. They're still trying to have a pattern according to, you know, the, the time zone that they're in and go to bed at say 11 and they think, well, it's 11, it's late, but really all of the signals that they've given themselves have, have offset their, their synchronization. I love that you just tied that social jet lag concept in because we actually just covered that on our last episode. So nice, that was beautifully done. (laughs) Psychic too. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's so many topics we could discuss with you, Alan. I think we'll have to have you back on a further podcast to discuss nutrition and brain health, traveling, readjustment, circadian rhythm, the clock, genes, and genomics. That's an area I'm Mm. really interested in. Mm. Just so much weight management, diets, etc. Um, there's only so much, but um, we can discuss on one podcast. But I mean, we've tried to focus this around kind of the whole timing of nutrition and yeah. your interests and finding out a little bit more about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've I've heard you talk about some of these topics previously, but I mean, every time I learn something new because awesome. there's so many facets to this. You know, there this, really is this this space. I mean, it's, it's yeah. very it's very interesting. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's been great having you on the podcast awesome on lads it's great <laughs> to geek out on just purely circadian stuff i'm just sitting here like i'm you've shattered my reality my friend <laughs> in, a, in a good way <laughs> i know no more no more late nights <laughs> yeah. um, 
So yeah. the question I'd want to ask is, what would you say is your kryptonite in terms of what would you struggle with in terms of nutrition? What would be your weakness? And do you encourage people to have a balance? Oh, of course. So, so I've come from a place of always being interested in, in my nutrition, but, but I guess like a lot of people, um, I started because there wasn't a lot of information in the general space. When I first started getting interested in training and, and nutrition, it was basically bodybuilding magazines. I was getting information from and, you know, talk about the garbage uh, that comes out of that kind of space about nutrition and, you know, I would eat a can of tuna with, without daring to put any mayonnaise on it because, you know, that, you know, I was eating clean and it was all this. And this is like, you know, 15 years ago and I was 18, 19. And so I came from this, you know, plain chicken breast, protein shakes, tuna out of a can, bodybuilding lore. And <laughs> I hated that. And so I, I just, I rail on, on that whole health and fitness industry now for the kind of crap that they give out. I think the tech, sorry to interrupt you, but I think the technical term is bro science. Bro science, fact. And now, you know, I I go through phases. I will track sometimes um, if I've got a competition coming up and like I've kind of, you know, weight is I need to just kind of drop a bit. But to be honest, where I'm at now is a place of intuitive eating. And I think that's the holy grail for everyone to get through. And you know, we've so many rules and restrictions. I do not have food rules. I, I've got rid of them all because they cause more trouble than it's worth. It's like creating this big red button to not press and you're going to press it because we're humans. Um, and I've also fought really hard, you know, certainly on social media to get people beyond a lot of the garbage that I think from the 2000s on, we had this real rise of like, movements based in total speculation you know the paleo buzz and and you know gluten is the devil and because it was hybridized in the 60s and most of these what the only thing they have in common is they've got a really good narrative behind them and people love a story so they buy into it but you know the idea of any food being uniquely harmful you know is is farcical um and just not supported by any science so i'm at a place now where I don't have any food rules. Um, if I have a kryptonite, it's something that I will eat uh, without guilt. Um, um, do what would my kryptonite be like? What do I not have an off switch for? Probably mince pies around Christmas. That <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Mince pies at Christmas time. I don't, they're not big on mince pies in the states. So yeah, could you explain uh, for listeners way, what a mince pie is? So a mince pie is not beef mince. It is a it is a mix of kind of, you know, sultanas and raisins in a kind of brandy sauce. So the inner filling is quite a like sweet and spicy. It'll have some kind of nutmeg and cinnamon. And so, yeah, so, you know, very kind of Thanksgiving style spices um, and it's all mixed together. But then it's in this really buttery, doughy pastry. So you've got this amazing combination of like sweet and then savory in the one and it's just it's it, they're a real christmas tradition in europe and i just don't have an off switch like <laughs> I have very tasty. Yeah. i'll or take two the other thing is when you go to portugal the 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 pastel de natas oh like, yes oh like i've no off switch like definitely <laughs> my friend brought some back um yeah difficult to resist they're yeah. insane so i i just i i love food like and i think that we should all be back in that place 
where eating diversity in food as well, which I think is is a huge issue. And you know, like the idea, imagine with where nutrition's at now with how dogmatic people are like imagine being like oh i'm really low carb and then you go to italy and you're sitting there and it's like what are you gonna do now like you know? <laughs> yeah good luck buddy <laughs> yeah, like, yeah yeah, yeah. Away. You, know, like, you absolutely should and I, I love that about travel is like i think you know a, a, a you know a culture speaks through its food and so like why not when you travel just like immerse yourself in whatever that place is like, oh sorry does this pizza have gluten it's like get out <laughs> I've, I've abandoned all that. <laughs> i've abandoned all that crap um because it simply doesn't serve your health and your mental health is probably just as important with diet um as what the food is going to do for you so i have a real balance i enjoy fasting as a practice and I'll fast sometimes more, sometimes less. That's also an intuitive thing. Um, and I do that not for weight loss. I do it for the potential underlying kind of metabolic and neurological health and just given, given the system a break. Um, I like the, the, the kind of the practice of it um, as a kind of reset. And, and fasting may be good for resetting the, the circadian clock. There's... Um, I think it, I think it's useful for like jet lag and stuff like that and getting over that. But we could talk about that another time. Yeah, I think we have to talk about longevity as well because you just brought me onto that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. so much. So I think um, Harun, what time are we on? Uh, we're pushing about an hour and twenty minutes. So uh, wow, yeah, this is longest, awesome. Longest longest episode yet. This is so I I, I, I could keep going, but I feel like, like we're keeping Alan and. I, this is, I mean, like, I'm fine. Good, lads, I'm, it's it's up to your listeners, like, to be honest. He's so. so engaging, and I can't wait yeah. till this episode is released because, I mean, I, you can extract so much actionable um, kind of behavior from this. Yeah. Um, and, it, and I mean, it proves you're human as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, you, know, you have to like food as well. It's not you just this like kind food. of food. It has to be something that, like, gives you, you know, emotional and spiritual and kind of spiritual nourishing you know and that's what it's there for so i i'm a big believer in the kind of convivial i think when you look at the mediterranean diet for example which is getting so much press now in nutrition sciences you know this really optimal kind of diet pattern um but the one thing that no one talks everyone's again lost arguing over the kind of nutrients in it and stuff but the one thing people don't talk about is the social aspect to it and the fact that people sit down and, and eat a meal and I love cooking. So for me, you know, the idea of, you know, putting on a spread and, and, and getting, you know, your friends over is just, it's, you know, it's amazing. Crack open a nice bottle of wine, get into that, have some food, get, get some conversations going, put the fucking phone on silence. Sorry. <laughs> first. <laughs> social connection. That's part of lifestyle medicine. Yeah, social yeah, connection. Yeah, you know, social connection. And, and food, food is a big part of that. And, and I think it's also important to remember that like, we are fortunate that we are, you know, kids that were afforded opportunities in life. And when you look at health research and nutrition research, you know, sometimes we need to stop arguing over, diet crap because all of the issues that face us in society now are you know obesity diabetes lifestyle disease these are socioeconomic issues you know we're we're lucky we're 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 normal weight healthy we have access to good food 
And, you know, that's not the reality for a lot of people mm. in low socioeconomic areas in the United Kingdom or the United States. And my brother lives in Chicago. He works in some pretty poor neighborhoods on the south side. And like, there's, there's nothing there. Like there's, so, and it's the same in the UK. If you're, you know, you go through an area of London or, or you go up north further. And like, say, if you'd see this in Manchester, if you go through yeah. there's some areas. Massive disparity. There's, massive, there's disparity. massive disparity. And so, you know, we're arguing over like, you know, oh, best to eat oily fish. And then like people in poor socioeconomic areas are like, what the hell would you think? There's massive disconnect. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, that's, that's the big kind of bee in my bonnet at the minute now is like, we need to start getting real about how we help the people who need help the most. And Instagram is often, you know, a kind of an echo chamber of like, you know, well-educated middle-class yeah. kids posting their chickpea curries. And it's like, wait, okay, I'm glad you've, you've found health, but you know, that's, that's not right. solving the problem on the ground. And it's not a criticism of that. You know, I'm obviously part of that machinery. I'm conscious of it. I'm saying we need to acknowledge where we're at and, and, and our fortune and maybe start having a conversation about how to get people's diets at a population level better. And I think we need to be comfortable with the fact that better will not be optimal, you know, um, from, from, from various perspectives. We're not going to please everyone you know, the planet's not going vegan. So, you know, how do we press on and improve population health in a manner that is also sustainable for the planet and achieves what we need to achieve at a population level in terms of reducing lifestyle disease risk? And it's like, I mean, these are big questions. Like, we're not going to answer that today. I think that's a brilliant ending and the narrative, um, a very logical narrative, um, disassociating the emotions from it so um yeah i think perfect way to end the podcast yeah Arun, take it away alan <laughs> it was a pleasure my friend like i we're gonna definitely have to do this again we have so much more Absolutely, to discuss guys that was really enjoyable yeah this is gonna be excellent i think everyone's gonna really benefit from listening to this episode yes yeah, um i i look forward to your your future work and on your road to getting your phd and Hopefully we can uh, have you on during that ride and uh, you can tell us some oh, more any, about it. Anytime, guys. Awesome. Thank you, yes. Alan. Awesome.